In today's episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, we are talking to Adrian Balding, the man who wears many hats and who is rebranded as Mr. CDC. And we're going to be talking to Adrian about what value for money means to him. Welcome to the 27th episode of VFM, The Pensions Podcast. Uh, we're back in the pod today, so in person, and as ever, I couldn't be happier to be joined by my co-host, Darren Phil. And I couldn't be happier to be literally sitting next to you, Nico, <laughs> um, doing another uh, VFM podcast. Um, I just wanted to do a big shout out to our listeners um, and, a, and say a big thank you. Um, we've been doing this podcast for how long now? This That's year. It's, it's, it's been from the start of the year, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, um, This 27th episode, plus a, plus three, a few specials. Plus a few specials. <laughs> we've got another special coming up. We're going to have to discuss all the consultations yes. last week in a lot of depth. Um, but we've had over 6,000 listens so mm. far, which I don't think is that bad for you know quite a niche podcast. <laughs> Good going. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so, uh, to go into our 7,000th number of listeners, I'm not quite sure how to say that, um, uh, welcome Adrian. Um, so, uh, Adrian, you are the Chair of Spire, Pen- uh, Spire Platform Solutions, uh, Director of Retirement Strategy at Dunstan Thomas, and member, we have to be very accurate about that, member at the RSA CDC Forum. So, many, many different things in your portfolio, keeping you very busy. You are more than welcome. Thank you, Nico. Great to be here um so yeah as ever we start with the news we right? do and as ever we start with our guests yeah. so, um adrian right well i bought i bought two pieces of news along for you the first is a press release that the government actress department put out at the beginning of the week it's a very very short press release <laughs> and it says the government actuary department produced the calculations behind the speech that the chancellor exchequer made at the mansion house mm. and i looked and thought what on earth is this tiny little press release <laughs> all about and then i concluded it's a coded message. Um, and for those of you that haven't decoded it yet, it's the government actually saying, I did lots of numbers. Go and look at them all. Yeah. Because inevitably, the chancellor's a politician. So the chancellor picked some of the rosiest ones that he wanted to put into his speech. And the speech was then covered by journalists. And journalists inevitably picked the best bits of the speech yes. to go into the newspapers. And then podcasts that report on the news. Yes. It's even smaller. Even smaller <laughs> still. So, so we need to get to the source. The, <laughs> lots of the important numbers are there to be read if you go and read what the government actually has done. Um, and I think one of the most important ones is that, that GAD produced a, a range of numbers mm. based on different levels of expense for private equity yep. investment. And when you look at that range of numbers, if you were investing at the, the, sort of the expensive end of the range, mm. where you could have charges of 2% per annum and 20% performance fee on uplifts above 8%, um, then GAD finds that pretty much all of the uplift that you can expect from private equity investment is lost yeah. in those higher charges. So there's a strong message there for those you know nine big asset managers that have signed up to the Mansion House mm. Compact that they all need to sharpen their negotiating pencils and go mm. out and get a really good deal from the private equity managers when they're deploying their £75 billion of assets into 
um, private equity. Mm. Yeah. And I think um, was Chris Sear in you know who led some of the costs and charges work at the FCA actually picked this up in a I think it's um, an article in New Model Advisor or CityWire or something. It's just like beware of the fees in this. Right. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah, we'll come on to your career in a moment. But yeah, am I right in thinking you were an actuary, Adrian? I am an actuary. You are an actuary. Yes, I am an actuary. Keep it up. I'm still. I have a vote. Yes, yes, yes. I'm with one of the candidates for council in the room. This is great. Yes. So you love diving into the detail. You love looking at these numbers. You love finding those nuggets. I read that coded message from GAT, and it said, "Adrian, go and read more." As the government actuary has said, and I will learn more than just picking up those headlines that said, you know, put my money into private equity and my pension's going to be a £1,000 a year bigger. Yeah, yeah. There's more to it than that. Yeah. Excellent. So, so for me, that fee piece is obviously the critical sort of missing piece from the speech. I don't remember Jeremy Hunt talking about the need for uh, private equity to kind of come and deal with uh, DC to make it value for money. Um, but so, you know, it takes me back to conversations because this is several years old, right? Mm. So um, we had the patient capital review, which we had to rebrand because there was another patient capital product, which right. unfortunately <laughs> attracted some poor headlines. Um, and, uh, you know, the sense that we as an industry uh, really need to find ways to come together to bring our scale to get venture capital, private equity, you know, real assets managers, unlisted assets managers to actually deliver the value for money. Um, I, I'm not seeing that in the narrative. You know, we have IFM uh, in Australia, um, all sorts of kind of historical and cultural reasons why IFM is a kind of sensible collaboration. You know, lots of union ownership and, and influence there and, and kind of collaboration there. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, are we going to have these competing businesses collaborating on bringing the scale mm. needed to, 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 to charge appropriate fees or get appropriate fees charged from private equity? When we had um, Julius Purcell on mm-hmm. the podcast, um, we were talking about some of the co- collaboration that Cushion had yeah. done with Nest. Yeah. 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 And, and I think there is definitely a model there. And for you know schemes that otherwise compete and competing for you know the, the members and the employers to be able to at least work together on some of these more complicated investments and get yeah. that, that benefit of scale. Um, yeah. and I, we, we should probably sort of reach out to Julius and find out how Could some of that in. stuff is going. Yeah, were they on the list? I, didn't, I don't remember Cushion being on the list. Um, no, they weren't. Yeah. No, they weren't on the list. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then, you know, there are compliance officers, antitrust officers, all sorts of people in those life company businesses who will be going, well, okay, so if you're essentially taking the life company sector to form some sort of a consortium, then is that legal? How do we actually go and do that? Mm. So um, if I was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, I would probably have a longer to-do list than I do, but um, I would would be wanting to ease that bit of legislation because for me, if you have those nine each going individually into this negotiation, With you know not that attractive asset sizes. Let's be let's not be too blunt about it. But growing over time, I think they're going to be taken to the cleaners by those those private equity houses. You know this is a global capital market. In the scheme of things, we're talking seventy five billion. It's get out of bed money, but it's not like race out of bed money um, for nine different pitches over the next ten years. So. Yeah, it's difficult. It's going to be really, really difficult. And it's absolutely critical that they get the fees right, as you said, because, you know, where's the value of you paying 2 and 20? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the Chancellor's tackling the burdens and barriers one at a time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the one he's tackled is the one that DC schemes were saying, can't invest in private equity because it's illiquid and i got to value my you know, portfolio every day. And so he's trying to tackle that one first. Um, and he's found a number that are willing to say, yeah, we can find a way around that one. Yeah. Um, but as you say, you know, there'll then be more, you know, barriers he's got to tackle as he presses on down the road from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and guess prerogative, Adrian. You brought us two stories. You've obviously listened to yes, too many. Yes, yes. Sorry, no, no. So I brought a second news story, which is that we've just come into um, you know insurance company reporting season. Um, just I think we're one of the, the first out of the, the block with their new business results this week. Um, and I was excited that they reported that individual annuity sales are up fifty four percent. They've sold half a billion pounds of them um, in the first six months, just sell a lot of their business through advisors, mm -hmm. which tells us that, um, you know, advisors are out there on the streets and advising customers to buy annuities. Um, the interesting thing in that is to say, well, who is it right to buy an annuity and who is it not right to, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. buy an, an annuity? And I sort of segmented up by um, sort of your, your retirement wealth mm. size. So sort of add all your pots together and perhaps other money as well if you've got some money saved and I just want to work out where you are. And if, if you've got sort of less than 25K, then don't bother yeah. because, mm. you know, you should put that in the building society and use that as rainy day money. It's not going to be significant compared to the, the, the basic state pension. If you got sort of up to about 100K, well, yeah. you could buy an annuity getting up to about £130 a week with that. Mm. And that's a really useful top up to yeah. your, um, you know, two hundred pound a week state pension. Yeah. So that's probably the ideal candidate. Mm -hmm. um, people buy flat annuities with no increases on them, and if you've got that sort of level of money, your state pension, which is going to be fully inflation protected, plus perhaps a bit more with triple lock, well, that'll cover your user increases. So they are really the ideal. Candidates, if you've got more, if you've got sort of 100k to 250k in your pension wealth, then you know that could get you an annuity of up to sort of 330 pound a week. Um, so considerably more than your state pension now. Mm. Um, really, really important to secure that income so you've got the longevity protection. But unfortunately, mm. the annuity is probably going to be a flat one. Yeah. Right. Um, increasing annuities, they are available. You can even buy an RPI linked one if you want, but they yeah. are very, very expensive, yeah, so yeah, people yeah. don't. So you need to start actually segmenting your portfolio and saying, well, we have sort to do some annuity and some drawdown, and then look to the drawdown portfolio to yeah. bring the increases. So if you've got more than that, sort of up to about a million, now you really can afford to use an advisor and you can afford to use some other sort of more clever tooling that's in the market. So there are people yep. like 7IM and Novia that have got nice tools that will do the risk profiling and build the blends yep. for you. Um, and that works really, really well. And then if you've got north of a, a million and you've got, you know, three, four, five million pounds in your wealth, then you can self-insure. And yeah, you're yeah, really yeah. going to be interested all about what's the inheritance I can leave when I yeah, die out yeah, of this yeah. pension pot. And the annuity isn't going to be right for you. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think um, a couple of things I, I take from that. One, that we've, we've moved into, we've, we're in the middle of an economic paradigm shift, yeah, mm -hmm. and the end of that low interest rate environment, and um, annuities have become, you know, on vogue again, yeah, um, and that's got to be a good thing, yeah, because you know when they seven percent, seven percent, so male sixty five, the standard level of annuities seven percent, and yeah. you don't have to go back that far yes. to when it was 
a lot less than that, wasn't it? Oh, way under four. Yeah, which is yeah, why exactly. people so, looked at the the four yeah. percent, you know, Bill yeah. Willingham rule for drawdown, and they said, "Well, my drawdown will yeah. get me more than my but annuity, it, and I'll have the pot left over at the end it, of it." Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I think yeah. um, that's good. Yeah. yeah. So the economic environment, and uh, I wouldn't say normalisation of the economic environment, but mm-hmm. you know, it. Annuities are now back, yeah, and and a, a valid part of the conversation. Yeah, when they yeah. weren't a couple of yeah. years ago. I feel I feel like it's the sort of de-unusualization. Something there like that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, then also one of the things that you picked up on was that mix and match type approach, mm. and I think we're getting a lot more thinking going into okay, it doesn't have to be drawdown or annuity, yeah, and yeah. it doesn't have to be a, a one-shot game. Yeah. you know, it needs you need more sophisticated thinking and more sophisticated solutions to to balance some of the opportunities and the risk when it comes to managing out retirement finances. Yes, and interestingly, it moves the key players. So the key players actually move from being advisors to being your discretionary fund managers. Yes. And so the discretionary fund managers are beginning to build retirement portfolios, which will include an element of annuity Mm -hmm. along with an element of, of, of drawdown. Um, and then those ready-made portfolios that the DFMs produce, the advisors will then, you know, take a selection of those and go out to market and yeah, find the yeah. right one that's for the right client. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, did, did just talk about the split between level and inflation-linked annuities at all? Um, so not, in their new, not in yeah. their new business reports, but yeah. they they said I believe very much the same as the the, the FCA split. Right. Um, and the FCA split is at over ninety percent mm. our level. Yeah. 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 Um, and there's a simple reason for that is that actuaries like short tail liabilities mm, and they mm. don't like long tail liabilities. Yeah. So if you add on increases or even complete inflation protection on energy, you really lengthen out the tail of that liability. Yeah. Greater uncertainty at the far end. Actuaries abhor uncertainty. So they worsen the rates. Yeah. Um, correspondingly, they will really sharpen the rates at the level of annuity where they, the average term is, is considerably shorter. Yeah. 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 Just because it, it surprises me, you know, obviously we're in a high inflation environment. Um, so there's obviously uh, there's some risk aversion uh, in your buying decision if you're buying an annuity. Um, so uh, just the extent to which that high inflation becomes sort of that risk awareness. Um, obviously, if it's poor value for money for you to hedge it in the annuity for the reasons you just gave, then that would dial it back down. Yeah, I'm sort of expecting the this low is, inflation This is actually a really important point that we will come to when we get on to CDC, because yeah, yeah, yeah. CDC schemes have this inflation protection built into them. Mm. So we've kind of got two questions in the marketing that we're going to ask people thinking about mm-hmm. buying a CDC. One is going to be, how would you react if your pension went down? Because yeah. CDC pensions could go down in, in nominal terms. You might have been having £100 a week last year. Mm-hmm. This year, you're only going to get £90 a week. So you ask people, how would they react to that? But at the same time, I want to ask them, how would you react if your income was fixed at level, but yeah. prices had gone up? 10% yeah, this year, yeah, yeah, or yeah, food yeah. prices have gone up by 20%. Yeah. You know, how would you yeah. cope with, with, with that? And that, hopefully, will help people to understand whether the risks of the pension going down yeah. are worth taking for the upside of expecting to keep pace with inflation as mm. they manage their income through You're the You're stealing all of our questions, Adrian. Lots to come on CDC, I'm sure. It's a very exciting field at the moment. Uh, So, Darren, what have you brought in? Yeah, so um, we're recording this on the Wednesday, um, and it goes out on Friday. But there was a bit of stir in the pensions industry (laughs) yesterday, and this was um, prompted by um, an article in Professional Pensions from Barry Parr. 
um, with the headline, there is a risk that the desire for wokeness fosters weakness in its wake. And, you know, the, 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 the Twitter and the LinkedIn um, response lit to up. Uh, lit up, yeah. Um, and it stopped me doing some work for a couple of hours. So I was really interested in what people um, you know, had to say. Were you writing and other people's responses? I wasn't. No, oh, no, no, yeah. no, no. I was, I, was, I, was, I was going to offer Barry some PR help. But, <laughs> but anyway, moving swiftly on. Um, so, you know, I don't agree with what Barry was saying in this article. Um, I thought it was quite astonishing. Um, but these views are out there, yeah. And I think it was right that professional pensions, you know, gives a platform for the discussion and the debate and there's a really good response from members of the pensions industry that professional pensions have all uh, have also published so it's well yeah. worth reading both mm. to, to get the balance but I just wanted to sort of pick up I don't, I don't want to get into a debate about wokeness and you know um, daily mail you know and, and all of that type of stuff but I, to me better decision making whether it's trustees yeah, whether it's at corporate boards, whether it's a governance committee, whatever, it needs that cognitive diversity, yeah, to be able to bring different points of view, to bring different experiences into the challenge and the decision making process. And of course, you want people to be professional and competent and meet minimum standards and stuff. But equally, we need to realise that everyone's got different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that's where your, some of the cognitive diversity actually comes from. So I just thought, well, it was a brave article by um, Barry, um, but also somewhat misguided as well. Well, it's a super bit, and I want to come to the super bit in a minute. But I did seven years at Now Pensions, um, and Now Pensions and did well. some. Super I remember your charges index. Thank you. you did. Yeah, <laughs> Now Pensions did some super work, which they carried on since I've left, exposing the gender pensions gap, mm -hmm. the ethnicity pensions gap, the disability pensions mm. gap, yeah. um, and there are some very real differences between the haves and the have-nots yeah. in our world of pensions. And, and I think if we have some of the the losers represented on the trustee boards and, and in the management committees of, of the, the you know people behind the Ooh. schemes as well then we have a better chance of getting some of these you know issues addressed yeah. Yeah. Than, than if we don't um, the bit that I really liked in Barry's article he said well what about divorce I've never met a divorce trustee yet. Right. Well, there's a huge divorce gap as well. When, is, yeah. Now we yeah. did the yeah. work on gender pension yeah. gap and tried to understand it. Quite a lot of it stems from divorce. That in very many cases, um, you know, divorced women don't take pension as part of the settlement, and as a result, they can end up with this, this pension gap between themselves and an equivalent um, male. Um, so having a divorced female trustee on the board of trustees sounds like a smashing idea. And I compliment Barry for coming up with that idea, <laughs> because, you know, that's the sort of person that would look at that and ask the questions at the trustee meeting and say, have we got barriers in our scheme that's making it difficult for a, a divorcing woman to take a share of pension as part of her settlement. Mm -hmm. And if so, uh -huh. let's dismantle those barriers yeah. and yeah. enable that to happen. Yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting. And, and yeah, as I say, professional pensions put in a, a industry response. Industry mm -hmm. figures defend D, E and I after blog raises questions over trustee diversity. And just a shout out to um, Jonathan Hawkins. You know, his um, post, he's um, from Bavura Solutions, okay. leads a lot of their dashboard work. Should get him on the pod. Um, and, um, you know, his, his, he didn't put his punches in his LinkedIn response. He, was, he said he was raging. Um, and that the, the post wholly misunderstands and misrepresents the point and purpose of diversity and inclusion. 
um, and then went on to talk about the use of the word woke, which is obviously right. quite emotive and gets people's passions up. And yeah. Stuff. I mean, did Barry use the word woke? He did. Um, I'm trying to... I, I'm in, looking it, at it now. It's, it's, in the he- it's in the headline, but, well, it's exactly. actually, but it was actually taken from the article. Yeah, it's yeah, a direct quite, quote from quite, the article. Uh, it's a lovely alliterative uh, headline. Um, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> hats off. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I'll I, I just pick up on that cognitive diversity point. Um which is just so hard to assess. I've, I've worked in reasonably diverse companies by pretty much all of the standard measures and found there to be a sort of cognitive uh, groupthink. Um, so there's a big risk that you have, uh, you know, a number of diversity criteria and you end up still hiring people who think like you. Yeah. Um, so how you address that, I think, is is a critical part of your, you know, addressing your unconscious bias mm. and, and, and your hiring processes. Um, but yeah, I mean, times are changing, and yeah. it's a good thing. So um, sorry that Barry feels. I no, guess, but, also, like, um, but also, but <coughs> also, I'm not defending the article. I don't want to defend the article. But someone did tell me that um, Barry actually proactively introduced, um, you know, personal detail screening on on the recruitment process in some of the, you know, schemes mm-hmm. he was working with and stuff. So you know, trying to get around some of those inbuilt biases that. So you mean yeah. uh, essentially um, uh, not sharing people's names, names and, and ages, ages and, and yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's some great studies. There's uh, um, the musicians at is it Juilliard? So they uh, when they <clears throat> previously you'd stand on stage and the uh, your audition reviewers, whatever it is, would see you, um, and then judges. Judges? I don't know. Who I'm judges thinking, an audition? I, I, I'm thinking You're X thinking Factor. X Factor. Yeah. yeah, it's basically X Factor <laughs> for professional musicians. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they, they hired people who look like them. Mm. Uh, but when you close the curtains and actually assess the musician, you get a much more diverse mm. uh, intake. So, obviously, it's very difficult to do with a trustee. Um, because inevitably you're at least going to listen to their voice and that might give you some vocal cues. Um, certainly around age and gender um but yeah so but this is where ai comes in you know you could these voice changing devices that you can get yeah. <laughs> we have darth vader interviews yeah. <laughs> so nico what have you got for us i am your trustee <laughs> luke uh what have i got for you yeah so we had uh, rona train on a few weeks ago probably months ago um and um yeah she's she's been commenting in uh ft advisor uh, dc consolidation could widen the gap between good and bad, uh, which I think is sort of reinforcing some of the messages that, that, that we talked to her mm. about. Um, and I particularly like, um, uh, I think, something that she said to us at the time, uh, the crocodile's jaws in terms of schemes that develop, uh, deliver good value and those that do not. So essentially the sense that uh, there could be uh, further divergence through consolidation. Um, and I think the the framing is that actually some of the smaller schemes might be delivering better value than the places that they go to. Right. Um, and uh, some of the reasons might be because they have sort of more trustee focus, they have potentially more uh, employer focus. Obviously, those could well also be the reasons that the employer feels it's expensive. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so you could have this sort of unintended consequence from consolidation. Mm. Um, so there's a bit of a sort of uh, a blurb and then a, an interview with her and as ever she was fascinating so, uh, I, like, I like the phrase crocodile's jaw yeah um, very snappy oh, oh, oh there we go <laughs> he's here every week <laughs> Adrian what's your view of consolidation and yeah. you know you you, you, you you worked at Now Pensions you worked at LNG you've been in the DC space 
uh, for a while. You know, how, how do you view the development of the, the the wider DC market and the need for scale? It's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as you see that consolidation, then generally speaking, we are seeing that the bigger schemes are better. Um, I'm not sure that it's just about size is big as yeah. much as actually as, you know, we tend to bring together the the best bits of them when they come together. Yeah. Um, you know, so so Cushion took over um, um, Creative. Mm-hmm. And since then, Cushion has been stronger, mm. better. I'm mm. seeing more exciting stuff coming out of, of Cushion. Um, now it's taken over by Kadane. Um, and I mean, Kadana wasn't another DC player. Kadana is a specialist with yep. a variety of different bits. But the the access to the Kadana expertise mm-hmm. made the now pensions business better than yep. it had been before. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I think consolidation can bring you, therefore, yes, quite a lot of nice advantages. Can yeah. it go too far? Well, would we want to have just one scheme left? You know, um, the British Rail of, of pensions or something? No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but there's a monopolies emerging. They're not called that. They're called the CMA. The CMA, the CMA would, would stop. Put you know any one scheme that sort of tried to sort of take over the the world in the way that they stopped um, you know Asda and Sainsbury's mm. right from merging, and we were going to have moved from four big supermarkets to three big supermarkets, yeah, yeah. and they put a stop to that and said, no, that's not right. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So we've, we've talked a bit about pensions already, yeah, and we'll come on to talk about CDC, but, you know, our next standard question is, how did you get into pensions, Adrian? Yeah. Well, it was a decision that I made in the staff restaurant at Prudential over lunches of steak and jam roly-poly pudding. So I got... I <laughs> Those got, were the oh, days. Were the days, yes. I got eight months of work experience between school and university. Yeah. Um, at Prudential in that fabulous red brick building in, in mm. Hobart. Right. Um, and they provided these absolutely fabulous lunches for, for, for staff and for very, very modest price. Yeah. Um, and so the actuarial students would all go to lunch together and we'd all sit around a big table yeah. and the rest of it. Um, and so I talked to loads of them and it did two things for me. It persuaded me that, yes, I really did want to be an actuary. So yeah. that was, was good. Um, and it showed me that the actuaries that were involved in pensions seemed to have rather more fun and exciting jobs <laughs> than the ones that were involved in sort of plain old life insurance. Uh-huh. And so when I finished university and I applied for, for jobs, I applied for pensions actuarial uh, jobs. And what were you studying? What did you study? I studied mathematics. So oh. I did completely irrelevant stuff like general relativity oh, and quantum mechanics and, and you know. That's a different podcast though. It is a different podcast. Yeah. Um, the infinite monkey um, page. Yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> I attended, you know, one of um, Professor Hawking's lectures. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, which was fabulous. Yeah. And... At that point, when I was there, his voice had reached the point that it was so bad that hardly anybody could understand him. But he had not yet had the American voice box done, right. which right. later life enabled him to communicate much better again. Yeah. Um, so his lectures had to be delivered by um, you know his colleague, 
Right. Spelt Dr. Death, but he was very cross that we ever called him Dr. Death. <laughs> Dr. Death. <laughs> oh, I'd never known that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he delivered the lectures and he was also super. But if he said anything that wasn't quite what Stephen wanted him to say, yeah. then suddenly Stephen interjected and a spiel of stuff came out, <laughs> of which the audience, you know, managed to understand a weedy bit. Um, and then Dr. Death would translate for that of the rest of us. <laughs> So it's at this point I'm revealing uh, the book I'm reading at the moment, which oh, is right. by Stephen Hawking, and it's um, all about M-theory. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I, yeah. I, I sort of have a dabble in this from time to time. Oh, do you? Not, not, uh, not that I understand any of it, but I just... How's your tensor mathematics? Don't even go there. It's I know, there's little piano. quotes, like, remember to look up at the stars, not down at your feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I, 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 was, I was reading this, yeah. and it's like... You know, the, the, the big advance from string theory to M theory... Oh, here we go. All right. ...is, like, rather than nine dimensions, they've actually now worked out that there's ten dimensions. And at this point, you know, my mind is just... <laughs> like, but anyway, it's not... Well, uh, so uh, I'll try and bring it back. But um, <laughs> what's very interesting is that these are mostly untestable theories. Yes. So um, we've got into a place in theoretical physics where essentially it's abandoned the scientific method. Uh, and it has, instead of empirical testability, it has beauty mm. as one of its uh, hallmarks of success. And uh, they're now in a sort of beauty parade world, uh, pretending that beauty is this sort of cultural uh, uh, objective thing that we can all measure as opposed to just something which changes with fashion. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's a, there is a quite a big... Uh, set of disappointed people in theoretical physics whose theories may well be true but are not beautiful right. um, and who believe that you shouldn't really go beyond the boundaries of empirical science in science. Mm. It's, it's just philosophy. Um, so, yeah, coming back to actuarial science, uh, <laughs> a world full of beautiful maths uh, which hopefully we uh, you know, can occasionally test in the real world. So you were drawn to being an actuary, which is, makes two of us. Good. Good. <laughs> and I never looked back, thoroughly loved it. Yeah. Um, and who did you, you work for? So you mentioned so that I spent already. lots and lots of time at Legal and General. You did. I remember <laughs> bumping, that's when we it, first uh, met, I think. Probably, yes. And you had yes. that little badge, which I loved. General um, umbrella pin badge. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, our then chief executive, David Prosser, came up with the, the idea for that. Uh -huh. um, he appeared in the out of context of one of the trade presses. Allegedly, he had 12 of these. One for each of his 11 suits, plus one for his pyjamas. <laughs> um, so I did lots of stuff at LNG. I did final salary pensions. I did money purchase pensions. Mm. I did personal pensions. Mm. I did actuarial marketing, sales, mm. mis-selling, mis-selling reviews. Um, you actually, you, you weren't mis-selling. <laughs> I've been out and helped people that, exactly. with hindsight, yes. were ashamed to have mis-selled. Yes. 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 We all got terribly enthusiastic about <laughs> the, um, you know, getting out there and, and liberating you know, people from their pension schemes. Right. And, um, so mine workers in particular yeah, were yeah. desperate to come out of the National Coal Board. Right. Um, they were being made redundant. Pits with loads of coal in them were still being closed down. The miners were furious. Mm. Um, and they really, really wanted to take their money away because they didn't trust the coal board to mm. run it. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, with hindsight, you know, when you applied the mathematical factors, you saw they hadn't been a great deal that they got. Yeah. We know it was a poor deal because the National Coal Board Pension Scheme then ballooned into a large surplus <laughs> with all the money which they hadn't paid out yes. as transfers. And then they augmented the remaining members to spend the surplus, right. which had the disastrous effect that those then doing the 
remediation, and I'd moved on to the team doing the remediation, um, had to pay back, not just to buy back the original benefits that the member had given up, but to buy back the augmentation right. that they hadn't had because they had left as well. Suitable so punishment. It was uh, a know. very expensive, you know, exercise. <laughs> and was it 2010 you were tasked by the new pensions minister, Steve Webb, to, yes. to look at auto-enrollment? Yes, and, and so Steve Webb came in, um, was pensions minister. They had inherited, you know, 2008 Pensions Act, which yep. said auto-enrollment will happen, but they hadn't pressed the start button. We hadn't got that, that yep. far. Um, and uh, Steve asked three of us, which was myself, uh, Paul Johnson at IFS and David Yendel from the Engineering Employers right, Federation yeah. right. to do a review. Um, and, you know, to his credit, Steve didn't want a political review that was sort of going to score points and say Labour's got it wrong, we can mm. do it in a more liberally, right. um, you know, coalition-y way. He just wanted to make it work. Mm -hmm. Well, it's called the Making Automatic Work well, Review. And then we called it the Making Automatic Enrollment Work Review. We came up with um, 15 recommendations and 14 of them passed into legislation, which was yeah. enormously unusual for yeah. mm -hmm. Very good. For so reviews. Which one didn't? Um, Sorry to oh. <laughs> <laughs> The one that didn't was that um, he wouldn't give employers a safe haven. Right. Um, the previous compulsion, which was stakeholder, an yeah. employer had to have a stakeholder pension scheme. Yeah. The legislation gave them a safe haven in that so long as the employer had gone to the regulator, then OPERA, and looked at the OPERA-approved list of stakeholder pensions and chosen one of those, yeah. then they were fine. Right. And there could be no comeback against the employer that he could have looked harder and chosen a better scheme. Right. Um, Steve wouldn't give us that for auto-enrollment. To this day, you know, an employer has, has still got this sort of slightly unquantified duty. Yeah. And maybe if there was a sort of disaster, sort of a la equitable life. Uh-huh sort of disaster, maybe employees might be able to sort of launch a claim against their employer and say, yeah. you chose a dud it's a scheme. Of, it's a very American narrative, isn't it? So, it's, yeah. so we fear desperately importing the, uh, the, the what do you call it, the, uh, the suing nature of what we hear from America. The litigious um, culture. The litigative thing. But we had plenty of others that, yeah, were, that yeah. did, you know, make them into legislation. And yeah. I think yeah. made it better. I think yeah. one of the... Um, most important ones we did was to go for the, the two threshold model. Yes. Yeah. That said, you don't become eligible for water enrollment until your salary hits the higher that threshold. Pays to save debate around. Um, time, and that mm -hmm. therefore, you know, because your contributions are only from the lower threshold, you're going to have at least a certain amount yeah. of yeah. Yeah. money coming in. Um, one of the ways we got that through was I, I took it to Steve verbatim the comment that I'd had at one of the presentations that I'd, I'd gone around telling employers about auto-enrollment, where this employer had stood up and he'd said, I'm, I'm looking at the case of Mrs. Jones, who's a you know, <laughs> part-time worker, didn't earn terribly much money, yeah. and he said, I've been through the calculation, um, and the amount I'm going to need to send you as a pension company for this week is going to be 0 0.8 pence. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Do I round it up or do I round it down? Steve realised that we could make a, a, a mockery of yes, auto yes, enrollment yeah, yeah, and yeah, if you yeah. get into the papers yeah. that you're getting this great thing but you're only going to get a penny paid yeah. in or something. Yeah. A bit like the mockery that there used to be of the, the, the dog licence which you remember got stuck at. Only just, yeah. 37.5p yeah. until the half p was abolished and had to be actually down to 37p. <laughs> um, 
um, until eventually, you know, government saw sense and got rid of the dog license because there's no yeah. point in having a license fee that cost. We would be talking about dog licenses on this podcast. Yeah, well, my parents said so. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, there were there were dog catchers, weren't there? In the, in the, you know, so you remember Top Cat? Yeah. There was the guy from the pound who used to try and drag the the, the protagonists into into the pound. So yeah, we had we had dog catchers. Amazing. Um, Amazing. And if you didn't have a collar on your dog, then uh, it could be taken away. Mm. So the safe harbour thing was really is quite interesting because at the time yeah. the master trust model was just coming to the well it, had, we, we it had, wasn't a glint in anyone's well, eyes well, I think yeah, it, I mean, we, we had start, plan. Yeah, you, you know Nest was going to be a master trust and um, you know, that, I think it was 2010 2011 when you know organisations like BNCE um, now pensions were looking at coming into the market but it was a bit of a wild west wasn't it yeah um, so well, now, now I, remember, I went to the launch. I went to the um, launch of now. Yeah, um, so I didn't know you at the time, but I was there fr- from Barclays. Um, so uh, yeah, that must have been 2010, 2010 yeah. yeah. So, 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 so I can see why. And and I remember talking to Steve when I was at People's, and you know we were saying, oh, you need you need proper regulation of master trust because this is going to go horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, and he was like, no. well, well, well why, why would I do that at the moment? Because I need to encourage a market. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and, and it was a chicken and egg situation, yeah, because Master Trust was done well, was going to be a model that was going to really support the rollout and delivery of automatic enrolment, put too many barriers to entry up, and the model would, just wouldn't have, yeah. have developed. Um, the reason I'm talking about this is because, you know, the VFM response that came out last week, one of the interesting sort of nuggets in this is, and we talked about this on this podcast quite a lot, is what is the role of the employer? Or yeah, what should yeah, the yeah. role of the employer actually be? Um, not necessarily being on the hook for outcomes, but what, what should the employer do to make sure that people are saving in a good scheme? Yeah. You know, and that goes to the crux of some of the VFM debate for me. Because yeah. at the moment, you know, the focus is on discharging quite correctly the auto enrolment duties. You know, and that's really important. You know, how many small employers are choosing a scheme on the basis of quality? Or value for money, they're not, are they? Yeah. Well, yeah. how are they going to? But, 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 my, that's my, the point. my question. If they're a big employer like like a Tesco, then they can afford to have a Ruston Smith that can you know really understand the market yeah. and find a really good scheme for for Tesco employees. If they're a small scheme, like the corner shop, yeah. then really you expect the corner shop. It's the same as health and safety. Yeah. You go into the corner shop, you expect him to have had all his electrical stuff, pap tests and the rest of it, so you're not going to be killed as you go around his shop. Yeah. Does he have the very best lighting for you to see by? Well, no, you'll get that in Tesco's. You won't get that yeah. in the corner yeah. shop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you set clear statutory minima that the little employer has got to do, yeah. which is around today focuses around who he has to enrol and how much he has to pay for them. Um, and you don't say you've got to seek out the best scheme for your your people because he's not equipped to do that. Yeah, but this is this is the competitive uh, failure, isn't it? So that uh, going back to the Competition and Markets Authority review of the the DC world, saying this is essentially the worst market that we've looked at. Office of Fair Trading. Oh, thank you. Um, yes, and hence we have IGCs to mimic yep. yes. what the trustee is doing. So if you go into your your, your, your master trust world, you've got you've got a bunch of managers that are making the thing run smoothly and slickly and making yep. it function, and then you have a bunch of trustees who are looking after the member and are saying, you know, is this member getting the right value for money? Those trustees are doing the sort of thing that you're saying, you know, could we ask the employer to make yeah. sure it's good value for money? Yeah. No, 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 ask yeah. the trustee to do that. Right. 
And what OFT said was we don't have that in the GPP group stakeholder marketplace. Yeah. So we invented it. Yeah. And created these things called AGCs. And some of them have had clear successes and some of them can chalk up and say, look, you know, these are the charge reductions that we've managed to push our, you know, um, sponsoring insurers into and mm-hmm. things. So there are some clear successes there. Yeah. Very good. Uh, so, is it time for us to... Well, I think it is. So, um, what does CDC... No, what does value for money mean to you? What does CDC <laughs> Well, value for money for me is, is all about outcomes. It's yes. about getting the best outcome for the, the members. Um, if I look and say, well, what are the contributory factors that influence outcomes then? I think in order of importance for me, it's contributions paid in, it's investment return on that, it is choice at retirement... And it is expenses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and expenses are down in fourth place in, in my list. Yeah. For far too long, we've had governments and regulators that, that inverted the list and yes. put expenses at, at, at the top. Um, it's led to a lot of not just regulatory pressure, but also marketing pressure. Yeah. So if you're competing, you know, in the, the big schemes market, trying to get a DC scheme, then you compete down to the last, you know, basis point and you then get rung up by your consulting actuary that says, you know, well, they wanted to give it to you, but, you know, X, Y, Z <laughs> have come in at 29 bips, whereas you're at 30 bips. Yeah. If you get down to 29 bips, then you can have the scheme. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And, um, 27. And 27 yeah. bips. And we're beginning to see the bad effects that that's happened. So Barnett yeah. Waddingham have put out some research looking at where are master trusts investing. Mm. And they find that master trusts um, hardly invest in illiquids because of the costs. And when they are investing in illiquids, they're not actually investing in illiquids. They're investing in some of the liquid vehicles that in turn invest in illiquids. So you you, you buy a sort of investment trust thing which is quoted on the stock market. So it's got a price and it then buys the illiquids. So adding another layer... Of, of, you know, cost and stuff onto yeah. it, but many of those hidden. And they're forced to invest in this way because they've got to squeeze down a limbo under the required yeah. very, very low AMCs in order to, to, yeah. to win business. So it's been revealed as counterintuitive. And yeah. I think I think what we saw in the big announcements last week is the beginning of a shift to say that the outcomes are what's important rather than the actual charges per se yeah, yeah. I remember um, I'm going to tease you a bit now but I remember LNV coming out um, in the early days of auto enrolment um, when there was a discussion about the charge cap and it was like you know what level should it be at and all of this and I don't think it was you that was standing behind this but probably someone a lot more senior to you uh, <laughs> Nigel Wilson um, it was, you came out and said right the charge cap should be at 50 basis points. Do you remember that? I remember that very well. Yes, <laughs> yes. But interesting, let's talk about LNG figures. LNG, you've put an awful lot of effort, when I was in, I'm sure it's continued since, mm. since I left, into getting those contributions in. Yes. Right. Cool. So LNG put a lot of effort when they're installing a scheme into getting out, getting out amongst the staff and getting them to pay the right levels of contribution so that those that can afford more than the minimum do. And then they have historically put in a lot of effort into maintaining those contributions. Mm. Um, And they deploy a number of devices. I I better not say what they are because some of them are probably still commercially secret Mm. even though I left eight years ago. Well, Well, we had Robert Cochran from Scottish Zulu. They they deploy uh, a number of devices that are are good at um, keeping up 
up persistency yeah. and restoring yeah. contributions if a member falls over yeah. and, and stops contributing. Yeah. And, you know, throughout both of those, for my mind, they are doing so much good for the outcome of the members. Mm. Yeah. That it more than outweighs, you know, whatever additional expense they're yeah. spending yeah. on this, you know, keeping those contributions coming. Yeah. Yeah. But there is a sort of fairness and attribution problem, isn't there, in, in collective? And we'll, we'll come on to put some other letters next to that. But just in general, <laughs> you know, we have uh, defaults, which is where the main emphasis is. And then self-select is essentially subsidised by default. Uh, we have, you know, people who might never increase contributions because they can't afford it and actually think about that state pension interaction that we talked about um, and people who just would naturally come in and go to the top of the matching tier and you know you don't need to engage me about contributions I'm, I'm you know I'm up there uh, but paying for the person on the ground uh, heartily encouraging the kind of intransigent staff and people who need a bit more handholding so you know that value for money measure has to take account of those sort of cross subsidies how do we are, they, are we are we right in putting all of these charges on the member? Should the employer pick up some? I'm happy with the way the legislation sits that says, you know, the employer must pay this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the em employee must pay that. And I think the employers welcome that because it's a fixed right. contribution. So the employers, you know, that pretty willingly the employer body signed up to AE. I said, yes, we will have compulsory pensions. But, but it was, because they're going to have it on the face of the bill. That was almost the deal that yes. was done, wasn't it? Yeah. So they know that it is, you know, a 3% yeah. contribution. And it's a high bar and, to change you it. Know, when it eventually gets changed, they'll know it goes to four. I think it's yeah. not yeah. three plus some charges that somebody yeah. else will decide should be this, that. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. I think it does lead you to a situation where members in different employers will have different experiences. Yeah. So, yes, if you're a member in a small employer, then you'll be joining, you know, Nest or, or Now, and the charges are going to be higher than if you're a member in a very large employer mm -hmm. where you're joining a, a legal and general or, or an ACON. But that's just part of the, the life that if you work yeah. for a big employer you get some of these sort of slightly intangible benefits that the big yeah. employer can bring you but actually the job you like might be a small employer so yeah you have to yeah. pay more now you know charge their their one pound 75 pence per member per month because that's what makes the business tick. Mm -hmm. And they will take in small contributions and they'll take in small employers. If the employer wants to pay weekly, now we'll take those contributions weekly. Yeah. Well, it's amazing that, you know, now had that model at the start and obviously Nest had the contribution um, charge. But both Peoples and Smart and other mass market master trusts do have some form of fixed fee now yes. um, to make the economics add up. So I was at now when we were taken over by Cardano mm. and the incoming Cardano chief executive said, I want to go out and meet some of these employers that chose now pensions and find out what happened and why did they choose, you know, now pensions. Um, and he came back from one visit and he said, I asked the employer my question and he said, we tried to go with Standard Life. And they said, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. try Legal in General, yeah. who said, no, try Aviva. And when they got to Aviva, they said, no, try Standard Life. <laughs> um, and then he heard of now pensions and now pensions said yes come on in right it's, um, and so they are playing in different marketplaces yeah, 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 yeah. so when you know when the now trustee board sit down and they do their vfm comparisons they will be comparing themselves against similar schemes in their part of the marketplace mm -hmm, yes. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
they're not going to say, you know, are we offering the same value as the, the Aegon Master Trust, for yeah. example, because they won't be. Yeah. But then Aegon wouldn't touch any of the now employers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they're all there for, I mean, one of the big risks of current VFM and future VFM is that everybody marks themselves green because everybody can find a little pocket of their, their market where they're the best value for money, right? Isn't this a slightly meaningless measure? Well, I'm assuming that we'll have a regulator that um, comes round and, you know, um, G's people up and tells them they're not green when they're not green. Mm. Which one would that be? I don't know. Well, which regulator? <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Well, the one with the teeth. The yeah, one with right. teeth, fine, now pensions. Uh-huh. Because the administration was not up to the required standards. Yeah. Yeah. And they had to go away and they had to correct the records and they had to work their way through the backlogs and they had to go into the underlying processes yeah. and work out why was it that the process hadn't worked and they got into a mess and they had to change that as well. Yeah. And only after doing all of that did the regulators that originally find them then sign them off. Right. Mm. Yeah. So it, it's not like, you know, if you get caught speeding as you go down the, the street, you get your penalty ticket, you pay it, it's job done, you go speeding again tomorrow if you want. <laughs> um, it's not like that. With, with, with TPR, if you are sanctioned, yeah. then you remain, you know, under their glare yeah. until they are satisfied that you put everything right and then they sign you off. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, in the world of yes. using VFM as a stick to do consolidation, and the places I guess we're expecting to be not value for money are the small schemes who would therefore essentially give impetus to go into the master trust. Mm. Um, and so therefore, in a, you know, the relativity of value for money, those master trusts are going to be value for money, mm. surely, uh, because there are, what, 1,400 non-value for money or, you know, Well, no, because value for, value what, what we're saying is value for money isn't about low charges. Value uh-huh. for money is about good outcomes. But um, as a trustee, so you would have to project you, those You outcomes. might have higher outcomes and better outcomes. Yeah. But we don't want it. It's the same as we were talking about, you know, private equity a yes. few minutes yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you won't get superior private equity performance if you're only prepared to pay your private equity manager the same as you pay your index tracking manager. Mm. Yes. Mm. So that might be a critical assumption. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is CDC the answer then? Should all schemes go to CDC? You know, what's your... CDC is going to be a great addition to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's not going to replace all schemes mm. because you have to go back into it and say, well, who would it be suitable for? So if I was a you know employee benefit consultant and I'm out talking to employers and I'm trying to find the right scheme for them, which sort of employers am I going to recommend a CDC to? Well, it's going to be an employer that's got fairly long-serving staff. Yep, right so that they're going to be with this employer for a while. I, I might tell them to segment their scheme and, and have a nursery scheme because a lot of employers have fast turnover staff at the bottom yeah. and then some of them self-select and say, I want to stay with this employer for, for quite a while. So it's for staff that are quite long-serving. Um, you could do an industry-wide scheme mm-hmm. for staff that are in the sort of industry where they stay in the industry for a long time, but they move around from one employer to another employer. And insurance companies is a perfect example. When I started in life, it was normal for people to attach themselves to an insurance company and do their entire career with that. And the final salary scheme was a perfect fit for that. Mm. Today, if you look at the insurance company staff, they will tell you all the different insurance companies they worked for before they arrived at the one that they're at at the moment. And that's how that market works Mm. now. So an industry-wide scheme for insurance company staff 
who should be CDC and would be absolutely okay. wonderful. Yeah. 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 Um, it's a scheme where you would expect the benefits to be a little bit more than minimum. Right. Um, if you had a minimum, you know, AE scheme, the sort that Nest and, and now, you know, very often running, the output of that at the far end of you is going to be a pension, which is about a 50% top up to the basic state pension. You're going to get about £200 a week from the government and £100 a week from now. Yeah. Um, I think for CDC, you are looking at employers and saying, no, 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 we are trying to help our staff through to something that is a bit bigger and better right. than that. that so those are my sort of employers that I think yeah. should yeah. be CDC. And by no means all employers in the lab. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and so does that rule out Nest from being a CDC scheme then? Nest have a very, very wide range they do, don't they? of employers. There are some fantastic employers in Nest mm. that really, really care for their staff. So, no, it doesn't rule them out. Um, I think it suggests that Nest probably wouldn't go wholly CDC. Right. Yeah. I don't see Nest saying we're going to shut the DC oh. section. Yeah. I see Nest saying we could have a CDC section as well as DC, and that will appeal to certain types of employers. Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to Steve Webb again, if I may. Oh, this, wow. Yeah. Um, and go back to the days of defined ambition. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because this is where a lot of the CDC Let stuff... Let a thousand went. flowers bloom exactly. was, was, was exactly. Minister <laughs> so, Webb's... So we, we yeah. about Only 12 years <laughs> later. So we, we talked about... Um, we've talked about CDC, but we haven't defined what it is. Yeah. And I, I quite often find myself in conversations about CDC and you can end up talking across well, purposes if you're not careful. But there, there are sort of two definitions, aren't there? So I think there's the Royal Mail yeah. and the legislation. And then there's the essentially the, the territory carved out between DB, which we basically know what it is, and DC, which we basically know what it is. Yeah. And anything in the middle, middle. might be CDC. Exactly. If you can cram it into the legislation. No, this is, this is not inconsistent. Yeah. Because if you go back to defined ambition and the, the heady days of Steve Webb, Steve Webb said, is a vast space. Yeah. I want a little thousand flower bloom. Come forward to me with examples and ideas of how you want to implement it. Yeah. And for a long time, nobody came forward. Um, and I think by the time the Royal Mail came forward, Steve had gone and we had new ministers in place. Yeah. But nevertheless, it was the Royal Mail that came forward. Um, you know, union and management and ACAS all together holding their hands and they said, we have an industrial problem, we think we can solve it with a new pension scheme and we think it looks like this. Mm. Um, And First Actuarial, they've done an awful lot of the work behind that and helped them to frame it and size it and scoop it. Um, And so they went to the government and said, yes, we'll legislate. And there it is. So Pension Schemes Act 2021 mm-hmm. is the Royal Mail Scheme. Yeah. It's that form of CDC. Yeah. And that's therefore what that we've got. If you want to do anything different from yeah. that, then there's a little back door you know, towards the back of the Act that says that it can be extended by regulation to do a few extra things. So right. they yeah. can extend it by regulation to bring in master trusts, yes. yeah. so long as they are following a Royal Mail type model. Yeah. And can, 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 can I put, can, you, maybe yeah. just tell our listeners what the Royal Mail model is, I think, and then we, that would be helpful. Right, so and the, tell me. The, the, Royal, <laughs> the Royal Mail model says that the Royal Mail is an employer and the members as an in, individual pay in a fixed contribution. Yeah. That goes into the scheme. Each time they pay a contribution, they are given a benefit in exchange for that. So they have bought a chunk of pension. Yeah. 
pounds per annum of pension, which will be payable to them when they eventually reach retirement age. And each year between now and the retirement age, that slice of pension will be uprated by the, the scheme increase, the annual scheme yeah. increase. Yeah. And the scheme gives the same increase to everybody. Yeah. And when eventually they get to the point that one of the posties in the Royal CDC scheme reaches retirement age, then the scheme then pays them that pension. And again, that pension will increase each year at the same rate of increase as the members that are still working their way through their working life again. Yeah, yeah. thank you. But that's not guaranteed. <laughs> the rate of increase is not guaranteed. Yeah. It may be higher than last year's. Mm. It could be lower than last year's. It could be nil. Mm. It can even be a decrease, mm. but that yeah. would be in quite exceptional circumstances. So Willis Charles Watson have um, back-tested the Royal Mail scheme and they found two years. If they back-tested it back to 1910, they found two years when there would have been a decrease and both of those were in the 1930s economic depression. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sorry, you were, you were describing how the current legislation could allow you so to... So you can that, extend yeah. that a little bit in terms of bringing in master trusts that can yep. then run multi-employer vehicles, could run industry-wide schemes, mm -hmm. and you can also extend it by regulation to bring in a decumulation CDC version. Right. Yeah. Um, in which somebody that was in a DC pension scheme up to the point of retirement would take that DC pot at retirement, transfer it to the CDC scheme mm -hmm. and buy a pension of yeah. so many pounds per annum, which would then get the annual increase, which is the same as everybody else in the scheme gets. Yeah. yeah. Now, a really, really important part in the legislation is the legislation says that that scheme annual increase must target at least inflation. Mm. Right. So yeah. we're not in the business of providing level pensions where the pensioning, purchasing power will be eroded. Yeah. Um, it's really, really interesting because for many, many years, I believed in what people call the, the U-shaped smile in uh -huh. retirement yeah. that says, how much income do I need in retirement? Well, pretty much a lot when I begin retiring, yeah. but gradually, you know, I get a bit more infirm and I get fed up with going out so often. And when I get to age 75, the TV license is free and it goes down and down and down and yep. less and less. And then eventually it goes back up the other side when I start to need some, some nursing care and attention. Um, because the IFS published some research that they did last year. Marina uh, Crawford's the main, main author. Um, and it completely debunks that. Right. And it says, actually, if you track pensioner expenditure, then it goes up at CPI plus one until they get to about age 80. Right. And it continues going up, but now it's CPI minus one, so slightly lower than the yeah, okay. price increase of it, but still yeah. going up every year beyond age 80. Mm. So if you're a pensioner coming to retirement, then you need to have, you know, some sort of inflationary increases built into your pension. That's absolutely vital, and the IFS have proved that. If you've only got a very small pension pot, then most of your pension is state pension. That's getting the inflation increase. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. But if you've got a pension which is meaningfully larger than the state pension, then you need to have a pension which will go up in terms with price increases. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and will CDC lead to better outcomes or bigger pensions? Well, you look at the actuarial modelling, um, and we've had modelling by Willis, we've had modelling by Aon, we've had modelling by First Actuarial, and, and the they, they all, over, they? all show. <laughs> Got to find something. To they do. they all show significantly bigger outcomes. Mm, so yeah. we might be talking thirty percent better. We might be talking fifty percent mm, better. Yeah. Um, and 
when I hear that, I think for the same level of contributions, the same level of contributions, and I say significantly better. Fantastic headline in the Daily Express a while back. You know, when one of the acts passed, you know, your pension's going to be fifty percent bigger thanks to the new CDC. And with the thousand pound for the government actually signing that earlier, yeah, I look at that and think, well, what could I do to verify those claims? So I could sit down and repeat the calculations myself. I am an actuary; I'm supposed to be able to do stochastic modelling, but I need somebody to pay me lots and lots of money and I'd need to hire lots of assistants and a big power <laughs> computer to, to do it. So, oh, no, no, so no, I, I, I haven't Thank you, Nika. So I haven't I haven't tried that. I could look at the firms that have produced the numbers and say are these firms that have stringent peer review processes? So this isn't some sort of fly-by-night press release that some, you know, um, actor had been out on the night that Tiles the Night Before was put out. It's a piece we, of serious work <laughs> that, you know, fellow partners in the firm have been through with a fine tooth comb before they put their numbers out. And it is. Those three firms all have serious peer review processes. Um, so I've done that bit. And the other bit which I've done is to say, well, where do they get all this extra money from? Yeah. Why is it that CDC is going to be so much better? So that's the bit that I've been spending my time trying to understand. Mm. And I have found five areas where I think CDC is significantly better than DC or, or income order. The first is investments. There's a double hitter. There's two in the first. First investments are going to be more growth assets for longer in your CDC scheme. More because it's a collective, and so as a collective, you can afford to have more of the risky assets than if you were an individual just on your own. And it'll have more of these assets for longer because the CDC scheme is planning to take people up to retirement, on through and past retirement. It's an inflation-linked benefit with high weights at the back end, lots of it back-ended. So you've got a much longer investment trajectory than a DC scheme where they expect their members to push off at retirement and they start de-risking them, perhaps from age 50, to get ready to, you know, leaving them at retirement. So assets, growth assets, more for longer will generate them more money. The third is the mortality pooling. So it yeah. pools the mortality in a similar way to which an annuity pools the mortality. And what it is telling me is that every pound which goes into a CDC scheme will be used to provide pension to you or your spouse or one of the other members. Yeah. It doesn't go to provide an inheritance for your kids, which is what happens in, in drawdown. It's a bit like the proverbial butcher who, on taking a sort of pig into the butcher shop, will say, we're going to use every bit of this pig except for the <laughs> oink. <laughs> and we do that within, within CDC. Everything except the oink of those contributions will get used to provide pensions. The, the fourth is that there are no guarantees. So you don't have reserves for guarantees. If you buy an annuity, it's dead certain you're going to get that money. We know that. It can't go down. Um, And we know that because the insurance companies have put big reserves behind it. Lots and lots of their shareholder money has sat behind that. And then if you delve into the accounts of the insurance company, you'll see that they are earning between 15 and 20% per year on their shareholder money. Where did they get that from? Well, not what they invested in. They got that from taking some of the money from the annuitant and paying it out to the shareholder. So we've got that bit gone. And then the last bit is going to be charges. Down at the bottom of my list, as always, but the charges are going to be low on CDC. The expenses are going to be low, partly because they are big group schemes and partly because they will not have to do some of the things that DC schemes 
have to do. So your DC scheme has to value every day. Mm. It has to have systems that can take customer money in and allocate it at the right price. It's got to be done at exactly today's price yeah. and so forth. And we're not expecting large amounts of transfers out. Yes. So if you get um, a master trust coming here on your podcast, a DC master trust, they will tell you that they are losing lots and lots of members to the consolidators that take out, you know, the adverts on the railway station. We they bring your, bring your pensions <laughs> to me. Um, and they lose members and they charge nothing for those transfers out. They think it's costing them about 50 quid a head every time they send right. somebody out the door, but they just have to take that on the chin and the other members have to pay for that. Because CDC is going to be expressed as a pension, as its currency, not as a pot, it'll be very difficult for an advisor to justify mm. a transfer, and it'll be very risky for the receiving organisation to receive it. Mm. Mm. Most of those consolidators won't take a DB transfer. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not allowed to take the DB yeah. transfer if, if it's under the £30,000, but they won't even take one under 30000 because they don't want the risk because it's just too yeah. unquantifiable. Yeah. So we'll have far fewer transfers out, which then again leads to lowering on the, the expense base. Um, I'm conscious of our time, but I'd like to ask two yeah, questions. Yeah, no, we're getting, we're, um, this is really interesting. Uh, so uh, I guess the first is, if I think about why did DB fail, um, uh, somebody had to account for essentially a balance sheet which included a term structured liability and accounting rules gave uh, employers you know a credit uh, type, type scoring right and it forced these DB schemes into lower risk assets than I think CDC would hope to hold so so what is it that sort of stops that from happening at the CDC level sort of part one <laughs> part two um, you know, does it not worry you that there are no reserves? That, that to me, that's the only bit of this that I kind of, we can haggle over whether it's 50%. I look at those numbers and go like, well, you know, that's a great marketing speech, right? And there's definitely problems in how DC is designed in terms of holding risk assets, and there's a whole bunch of stuff, right? Um, I definitely believe in the longevity piece, but, but not holding reserves, just to me, there's something at the back of my neck that stands up a little bit. And this sort of defined ambition piece. Does it? I mean, is that not a concern? We'll come to that. We'll come, let's, yeah. take, let's take the, the, the yeah, first yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. How did you know DB start to fall over? So I was part of the the growth of DB. I was mm. a funding actor in the times when DB was was growing. It was hot. It was hot. We were selling <laughs> new schemes. As as the the new schemes. I know. It's started <laughs> to mature, and everything was fabulous. Yeah. Except that I had some schemes where the employer got a bit over mature. Right. Mm. And in a DB scheme, if your employer is over mature, your workforce has got too old, then the cost of that goes up. Yeah. And if as an employer you think, well, I'll stop that by capping off the new entrance, I don't know, then your scheme ages even further yeah. and it goes up even further. So DB didn't have an exit strategy. There was no strategy that said when an employer gets a bit older and over mature, what can it do? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what led to the, the downfall of DB. Um, so CDC, because it's built on the way that we built DC master trusts, yeah. every CDC scheme has to have its escape route already planned. 
Right. And this is why the Royal Mail haven't launched. Royal Mail haven't launched because it's the escape route. Mm. What do they do if the post office starts to shut down or if right. people stopped writing letters and we didn't need 150,000 posties anymore? Yeah. The number of the posties were coming down. How would they wind it up? And and, and and because those regulations aren't quite right and aren't quite finished, the post office can't launch. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, but they will. They will get over that and they will get that launched. I know they're working with DWP to, to, to resolve that. Yeah. Um, but so... Every CDC scheme will have its escape route planned that yeah. said, you know, when it's time to move on, this is how I'm going to do. And this is why, you know, CDC master trusts are so ideal, because your ideal escape route will be to say, if my business has got a bit over mature and it shouldn't really be running a pension scheme anymore, then I need to shift that into mm. a master trust type vehicle and join up with a bigger collective and sort things that way. So that's what you'll see, I think, in the escape plans of yes. both the individual CDC schemes plus also the CDC master trusts. Yeah. It'll say, you know, if push comes to shove, if there's a triggering event, what would we do? We'd find another master trust. I help yeah. Now Pensions right there, um, you know, continuity strategy. What yeah. would Now Pensions do if Now Pensions didn't want to carry on anymore? Yeah. Or but presumably in that, in and that the answer is they survey the market and they would yeah. find the best available master right. trust, um, you know, and they would, um, you know, land their business. But that, but that might result in a reduction of, of purported benefit, right? Because it could be that, you know, you were running, I don't know what uh, sort of rates the one pound at different ages gets, but say it's 20 here and then the one you find is, is 19 or... You can, right? you can sectionalise schemes. Right. So, yes, so if I was running a CDC scheme and another CDC came along to me and said, Adrian, we'd like to join your scheme, we want to yeah. close ours down, yeah. then they could join it, but I would probably sectionalise them yeah. and say, I'm going to run two sections for a while. Yeah. Um, maybe in fullness of time, I could find the experience was the same, and we yeah. could, you know, we could bring them bring them all together. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe not. And when you look at DC Master Trust that emerged, you find that very often they have run them sectionalized for a while, yeah. and then eventually they have yeah. brought it all yeah. together when they're really yeah. sure that they they can do. Let me come reserves. on to the reserve yeah. Yeah. pit because yeah. that's also really really important. So we don't hold reserves for benefits. Yeah. Because all of the scheme money is paid out to the current members. So the actuary does his valuation every year, and he tots up the liabilities, and he tots up the assets. He has to do it on a best estimate basis. So normal actuaries don't need to apply for the job kit, because normal actuaries, like, like me, oh, do everything on, a, on a prudent <laughs> basis and snuck in a margin here and a bit right. of extra safety yeah, yeah, over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've been told very clearly by the legislation that we need a new breed of actuaries that will do everything on a crystal clear best estimate basis, no hidden margins. Right. And then set the scheme increase rate to determine the scheme liabilities so that the liabilities and the assets are in perfect match with nothing held back. Yeah. So we avoid that problem that, that with profits had, mm. that the earliest people that came in with profits, they often came out in the, the 1890s and, and, and things, yeah. um, got poor value and reserves were built up, yeah. and then the reserves were available to pay out later members, except the carpetbaggers came along and said, we could break this up and we can get those reserves out and enjoy yes. them ourselves. So we avoid yeah. all the things. The only reserves that the scheme will hold is it will hold enough reserves to cover the running costs while it is merging with another CDC scheme. 
a bit like, you know, if you go out on a jet aircraft, you expect the pilot to hold enough petrol in the tank that if it is coming into Heathrow, they say, terribly sorry, mate, there's been a problem on the runway at Heathrow. You can't <laughs> come down at the moment. He's got enough to flip round and get to Gatwick. Yes, <laughs> yes. <coughs> so do you, um, do you need a, a CDC scheme of last resort then? And is that, is that why Nest will become a CDC scheme? Because if you've got this continuity strategy, this wind-up strategy, then you know where does Royal Mail go at the moment? Well, they're the first and only one, I know. which does give them an, an issue. You know, as a social, we had exactly the same issue at, at Spire. Right. When we set Spire up, we went in to see the FCA and tell them what we were doing and the rest of it. And they said, we love this idea that you've got of putting an annuity inside an income drawdown mm. plan. What's going to happen if, you know, your first one decides to wind up? Yeah. And, and our first plan was was with the fund platform Novium. Um, and we went away and we looked hard and we realized that until we had a second one, there wasn't anywhere for them to go. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked very nice as a just and just said, well, we've got a sip. Right. Nobody buys it. It's got no members in it worth mentioning. I don't think either you've heard of the, the, the just sip and I'll forgive you if, if you have It's not a major line of business for, for just. But just said, we'll open the just sip so it could take the right. Novia, mm. if the Novia, you know, needed to, right. to stop yeah. for, for any of it. They don't yeah. need to stop. They're a yeah. thriving, you know, platform. Yeah, yeah. But um, so we created that second one. So there was somewhere to go, should it be. Right. Um, we've got more platform now. So, you know, we, we don't need that, that yeah. sort of escape yeah. anymore. Yeah. Um, what have the Royal Mail got as the first one? Then if there isn't another one that they could go to, and this could happen if there wasn't another suitable one to go to, if the yeah. second, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. Um, CDC isn't suitable to accept Royal Members, then they have to buy out the members in some shape or form and they have to transfer them into DC or to buy an annuity. Yeah. Or, or something. And, and that's and the employer that has to do that, is that? Or that, is the, that the scheme, scheme trustees. The scheme trustees yes. have to so the scheme trustees will have to do all of that before they are allowed to wind up and, and close and, and yeah. go right. home. Yeah. 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 So the traditional winding up order sort of exists or they've got their own winding up order? Are they doing pensioners first? Is that, is that how it works? In no, 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 no. Yeah. Everybody will get their, foot, their benefit in full. So they should all go out together. Yeah. They should all go out together and they should all get, you know, um, what the, the same treatment. Yeah. We're now in longest podcast ever territory. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, you, the, you've the, talked more than Andrew <laughs> Warwick Thompson, which is uh, super impressive. Know, which yeah. is very, very impressive. So um, what have we missed, Adrian? We, we, we'll give you the last word. Is there any other points that you wanted to get across to our listeners? <laughs> so many. Well, <laughs> we haven't talked much about decumulation CDC. We haven't. Um, which in many ways I think is the most exciting part right. of it. Yep. Um, just because of the really, really strong fit between what is it that people need and what is it that can be delivered. Mm. And I think we've all seen the research that lots of people have done where they go out and they talk to customers and they say, you're coming up to retirement, what do you need? Yep. And yep. they say, well, I need to have an income every month. Because that monthly paycheck's going to stop, but I've still got my monthly bills going out for the council tax or the Sky subscription, what have you. And they need an income which will go for the rest of their life. And they need an increase which is going to broadly keep pace with the cost of living yep. um, because those bills are going to go up. And that's the proposition that CDC mm. offers them. It's such a strong fit. Yeah. Well, certainly from a, a principled and um, yeah, policy point it. of view. 
Yeah. Um, well, there's probably another podcast on that, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, I'll. Um, you never know. You might be our first guest that we invite back. Asia. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, yeah. We haven't talked about that. I think no, okay. we haven't no, talked we about that. We have to invite someone back at one of these. So places. I've got a confession to make. Oh, I nearly no. didn't have the podcast today. Um, so I got off the train at London Bridge. Yeah. Um, to, to 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 switch the train to get on the Blackfriars. Um, train departed. Um, oh, where's the Yeti microphone? Oh. oh no, I've left it on the on the train. So I managed to jump on another train. Yeah, get to Charing Cross, recover this from the from the train, and then get back here in time to do the podcast. Fair so, play you know, above, um, and beyond. Beyond. above and beyond. You know, I couldn't let thank Adrian you. and Nico down. Yeah. Oh, thank so, you. <laughs> but anyway, I thought I'd couldn't, I'd fess up to um, that. Adrian, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being a great guest and uh, sharing your thoughts not just on CDC across yeah, the whole across of your. The base, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it has been a pleasure, and the time has flown. It has <laughs> it flown. Really it really does. does it always does. In um, our little sauna, this is quite a warm. Pod. I'm it, glad to be face to face. I think I think we do better face to face. Yeah, we but, definitely uh, do. We yeah. are pretty much in the direct sunlight and with no air for uh, yeah. for, for your listening pleasure. <laughs> so, indeed, indeed. So that brings today to a close. Um, thanks to DG Publishing for the pod. Yes. Uh, we've got loads of guests coming up. Yes. Um, and we're going to continue <laughs> doing this uh, for August. Yes. Um, listen, like, comment, share. Uh, vote for me in the IFA way. Wait, what's uh, your what's your elections? one sentence pitch to a fellow actuary, and then we'll leave it there. Uh, well, look, it's the most important election in a generation we've got to reform the constitution of council we need people who have views diversity right cognitive yeah, diversity yeah. Uh, not just pensions and life factories much as we love them uh, not just people based in the uk much as i'm one of them so um yeah we need uh, a good old list of people who are going to take the members through uh, what's going to be a very complicated and difficult number of years. So, it's a um, very actuarial sentence in terms of length. I breathed. Yeah, I did have a technical director. So, yes. Well, well, good uh, luck with that. Look, look me up on LinkedIn because I'm also endorsing a few other candidates in that vein. Excellent. Adrian, thank you so much. Thank Be you. Brilliant. <laughs> and it's bye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's cheerio from me. <laughs>